Whitney. Good morning, Whitney. Whitney, you are your daughter's, you are your mother's daughter for sure. Oh, there she is. I didn't see you here. Let me ask you a question before we get started this morning. Is, is our worship over? Have we completed the, the worship part of the service? No, right? So we don't just call singing the worship part of the service. Although we do. We know better, but we do. We're actually de-evolved from, we, we think that really the music part is the worship and that this is now the reading of the word and this is where we can get ready for nap time. And I'm going to yell a lot today, so you're not going to be able to take a nap. And then when we leave here, then we can go back to not being Christian again. We, we, you say, we don't really we don't really say that. Yeah, but we demonstrate it so often with our life. To where worship is something we make a once a week thing when God intends worship to be a moment by moment thing. That not only, not only happens with our hands and our feet, but with our minds and our thoughts as well. So that our entire person is dedicated to the worship of God. What is worship? Worship is God's worthiness to be praised. It is, you say, what, what is that? It's, it's what we all do all of the time for things that aren't God. We praise things that we love. Praise is as natural a human character trait as anything. We praise and worship all of the time. Man, did you see the Heat game last night? Oh, they beat Washington. Oh, it was so good. Did you see that shot at the end of the game? Oh, man, he is great. I think he's one of the top ten of all time. And Oh, man. And there's excitement, right? And, and I'm not shaming our excitement, but that's praise. That's what worship looks like. Man, yo, you got you to see this. I'm gonna, let me impersonate somebody in my life who usually talks about beautiful girls that he sees. Drew, I got to tell you something. This girl is hot. She is so fine. Oh my gosh, she's so beautiful. And I say, John. <laughs> she's I. She's no, she's no Stephanie, but that's your sister, so that's weird. But, but we, we, man, they're perfect for us. And we praise them. We speak about them and we're, we smile and we talk about them. And we're excited about them and we're happy about them. That's worship. That's what worship is. But how often do we do that for God when we're not here? And then even there are some Sundays when we're here and we don't really do it. How do we respond to God's kindness? That's a descriptive question and a prescriptive question. I mean, first off... How do we respond to God's kindness? What, do, what does it look like in your life? How do you, Monday through Friday, respond to God's love and, and the mercies of God? I mean, consider what He's done. We're getting ready to celebrate, starting tomorrow, Passover. What is Passover? God saving His people through the innocent bloodshed of a lamb. 
Well, what about, but that's not a Christian holiday. Certainly it is because Christ is our Passover lamb. And we get really excited and the people in our lives get really excited because Easter's coming and that means there's going to be a sale on that canary yellow suit you really want with the yellow gator skin shoes to match. And we're really excited because this is going to be the one week of the year we are for certain going to be in church. But what about the other 50 weeks? What does our worship look like beyond the Passover season? The Bible tells us that Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 tells us what our worship should look like concerning the Passover. He says this. He says, your boasting is not good, speaking about a man who is living in sin. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You let a little sin in your life, it's going to work its way through the whole thing. And he's speaking in particular about a church. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. He's speaking to a church body, but that has individual application for our own lives. Get the sin out of your life so that you may be a new lump. Why? Because you already are a new lump. Listen to what he says. For Christ... Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate. Let me give you another. Celebrate the festival. What festival? An ongoing Passover. Not once a week or once a year for a week, but an ongoing Passover. How do we celebrate it? We celebrate it by singing loud songs. For Paul know. We celebrate it not with the old leaven, that is sin, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We celebrate, we show our response to God's kindness by how we live our lives. If you have your Bibles... Turning them to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. This is an update to a sermon I preached about a year ago. And it fits nicely as a cap to what we were talking about the last two weeks with how can we serve. I hope you've been challenged by these sermons. How can you serve? It is real. It is practical. C.S. Lewis said something very interesting about our response to God's kindness. He said, if you have really handed yourself over to Him, it must follow that you are trying to obey Him. If you really believe in Jesus, it follows that you're really trying to obey Him. What sense is there in calling yourself a Marxist if you don't do the things that Marx told you to do? What sense is there in calling yourself a Christian if you don't do the things Jesus commanded you to do? But trying a new way, he says, he says, you've handed yourself over to obey him, but trying in a new way, a less worried way. Not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already. Not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, 
but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. In other words, he's saying this. Faith is alone, but faith is not alone. We believe in faith alone, but it does not come alone. It comes with something. Justification for believers equals faith plus works. Not faith plus works equals justification. That's a slightly different equation, isn't it? Faith plus works does not equal you're saved. But you're saved equals faith plus works. There is no such thing as a salvation absent from works. There is such a thing, of course, as a salvation completely by the faith alone. The faith, the grace of God that works through faith, of course. But it's never alone. It always is accompanied by righteousness. Look at our text, if you would. Therefore, Paul begins this passage with, Therefore, whenever you see therefore, you know the, the, the phrase, ask what the therefore is there for. Therefore is a conclusion indicator. It means he's arrived at his conclusion. Conclusion of what? An argument, statements, premises. What are premises? They are statements that are either true or false, and they are used in an argument to prove a point. And Paul just assumes that we assume the truthfulness of the premises Therefore, what he's going to say here, therefore what? I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This morning I want to prove this point. That since God has graciously given himself for us, we must respond by giving ourselves to him. Since God has graciously given himself to us, we must respond by giving ourselves to him. Let's pray this morning. Father, work in us the work that only the Holy Spirit can do to work in accordance with the new creation, the new life, Lord. We know that no works will justify us. There are no good works that we can do in this life that can earn our salvation. But we also know, Lord, that our salvation is always accompanied with good works because good trees bear good fruit. So, Lord, we ask that you would produce what you can produce in us, namely the good works. Charge us to act, exhort us to act by your word in accordance with your good will and your pleasures. Amen. The first point I want to make this morning is that God's sacrifice for us demands the sacrifice of our bodies, the whole person. We saw here that the word therefore is the first word in our passage. Well, what has Paul been arguing for in the book thus far? Thus far in the letter, Paul has argued convincingly that the whole world, 
Jews and Gentiles, the word Gentile means non-Jew, someone who is not a person of God, at least from a Jewish mind. Jews and Gentiles alike, the whole world is sinful before God. Whole world, not one single person who's not sinful. He has argued that the righteousness that God requires has come apart from the law, and it's a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Whole world's guilty. Only way to be righteous, righteous means in a right state with God. We have a relationship now where I am justified. Imagine righteousness as standing in a courtroom. And whether or not we're guilty or not, are we guilty? And the answer is yes, you're guilty. And the answer is how can I be made righteous with this God? And the answer is Christ alone. Faith in Christ alone. Paul has proven that God has always accredited righteousness this way, by faith and not by works, just as he did with Abraham. From there he explains how the historical reality of our inherited sin and death from Adam has led to God's gracious gifting of righteousness and eternal life to all who are united with Christ. After that he argues that the implication of our unity with Christ is that we are now slaves to righteousness and no longer slaves to sin. Now that we are in Christ, we no longer walk according to the flesh, but now we walk according to the Spirit. And all of this based solely upon God's gracious and sovereign will, Romans eleven thirty four and 35, to manifest His great salvation in a people of His own choosing from every race of men through His providential purpose in history. God has done all of this for us. So not only is salvation not obtained by our works, but God does the saving for us. So not only can we not earn God's favor, but God gives it to us. So that he can say in Ephesians 2, it is by grace you've been saved. Not by works. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. Now, therefore, chapter 12. In the light of all that God has done for us by the mercies of God, is what Paul says, he now urges believers to offer their bodies to God as a living and holy sacrifice to Him. This exhortation, therefore, is not made in a vacuum. It is our reasonable response to the mercies of God to sacrifice ourselves to Him since He has sacrificed Himself for us. Robert Mounts has said that in in view of God's acts of mercy, it is only fitting that we commit ourselves without reservation to Him. But the offering of ourselves, that is our bodies, which is our entire person, including our minds, is not a payment in return for God's mercy showered on us. His mercies are gifts and not loans to be paid back. It is our spiritual or reasonable act of worship, however, that we give ourselves wholly and completely to the one who gave himself for us. It is our reasonable response. It is the response of someone who understands what the gospel gift truly is. But how then do we offer our bodies as a sacrifice to God? 
Paul says, as living sacrifices. He uses the word living as a modifier for the word sacrifice in order to show the kind of sacrifice that we now offer to God. In the past, sacrifices were offered to God with animals, and those animals, what? They died. The opposite of dead is living. So in the past, animals died. Christ has died, but now Christ is alive. And we are alive too. So, now that Christ has died once and for all as the sacrifice for sins, we no longer offer dead sacrifices to God. But now, since Christ has been raised, we offer living sacrifices of our bodies to Him. David foretold this as well when he said in the Psalms, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. Our living sacrifice to God is to delight in his will. We prove to God that we love Him when we live our lives for Him. We prove to God that we love Him when we live our lives for Him. Living sacrifices are also unlike dead sacrifices in that they're not a one-time thing. The, the idea of coming down the aisle and, and praying a prayer or, or, I don't know, I've never heard about filling out a card. Dad used to say filling out a card. I've never done that. But we did, you know, coming down the aisle or you were saved at youth camp. And that's, for many of us, the only evidence of a sacrifice we've made to God in our lives. But living sacrifices are ongoing perpetual sacrifices. They do not stop. They are day by day, moment by moment, thought by thought, devotion to God's will lived out in obedience. And this is a crucial point here. Offering our bodies as living sacrifices does not earn our salvation. It's not a payback for salvation. It is simply the reasonable response to God that we understand what He has done for us. A lack of worship and excitement about God and what He has done for us shows that we may not fully understand what God has done for us. And if we don't understand what God has done for us, are we being transformed? We should be reminded, every Christian should be exhorted, but he should not have to be convinced that God is worthy to be obeyed and worshipped. No believer should have to be convinced of that point. Reminded, yes. Exhorted and urged, yes. But convinced? 
of what God has done for you? Weren't you convinced when you were baptized? That your salvation, you, you, you can't know what it is to have God until you really try your level best to be perfect and you fail and then you say, God, you got to do it. Now you get his mercies. Now you get what he's done for you. Then we begin to demonstrate that by how we live. So we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, but then we also offer our body as holy sacrifices. In other words, God gets to define how we offer our bodies. Yes, that we continuously offer our bodies, mind, body, soul, and spirit, every part of us. But he also says, it's a holiness that I require. Holiness. Paul describes the type of living sacrifices, holy sacrifice. God's loving sacrifice for us not only motivates our moment-by-moment devotion to Him, it also demands His holiness and not our own perceived holiness. He determines what is right and wrong. He gets to set the rules in His Word. Paul told the Galatians that the deeds of the flesh were obvious. These are the unholy deeds, immorality, impurity, sensuality, all of these are sex, so far sex, 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 sexual sin. We don't have any of that in Miami, right? (laughs) Come on. Idolatry, sorcery, enmities, this is fighting, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, says Paul. That's unholy living. It's not okay for a believer to participate in those things. If you do, you're sinning. You are not offering your bodies as a sacrifice to God. You are offering them up to evil. You are allowing the leaven of the old life to remain in your body. And you demonstrate that you have not yet fully and have not even maturely grasped the mercies of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is joy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So as Christians, our lives are to be characterized by the holy fruit of the Spirit rather than the rotten fruit of the flesh. That's why our verse for the year is 2 Peter 1, 3 through 6. Is it 3 through 6? I know what it is. 5 through 8, thank you. I've been reading 3 through 11 because I'm getting ready to preach on the passage. But the point of the passage is what? If you have faith, increase in qualities, in these qualities. Why? So that you may prevent being ineffective and unfruitful. And then he goes on to say that those who are unfruitful and ineffective are so nearsighted that they are what? Blind. Follow the logic. Blind people aren't nearsighted, are they? What are they? They're blind. They have no sight at all. If there are not marks of maturity and holiness in your life, 
you might, and I'll just say it the way Scripture says it, you might be so nearsighted that you are blind. I think that means something. What do you think that means? So what do we do? God must never be reduced, though, to a mere moralizer. God's not coming in and saying, do this. Those who are ignorant of the Christian faith often perceive God as a cosmic killjoy, waiting to zap all of those who fail to live morally perfect lives. And no doubt God punishes the lost for their sins and Christians for their sins, and He disciplines, it's slightly different, those who He loves. The perception of God as a cosmic bean counter and a good and evil, or sorry, of good and evil is, tantamount to, is not tantamount to the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture has given himself to be a sacrifice for our sins, making peace through the blood of the cross of Christ. And if God has therefore purchased us with his blood of his own Son, how can we not offer our bodies as living and holy sacrifices? It's just reasonable. It might be helpful at this point to give you an illustration. If a loved one gives you a very special and precious gift... How do you show them you appreciate it? Throwing it on the floor and never using it again? Never doing anything to make sure that it's cared for? No. You care for it. In this case, he has given us new life. This is a living gift. And a gift that we're responsible for keeping alive. Maybe it's like getting a puppy for Christmas, except it doesn't die after 12 years. It's ongoing. We must feed it. We must discipline it. This is a precious gift that God has given. How much more? You know, the problem with illustrations is that they never reach the infinite level of what God has given us when he did not count equality with God a thing to be clung to, but emptied himself and became a man. And died on a cross. That is infinitely greater than any illustration we can give. Douglas Moo says this. He says if we, in, in the context of offering our bodies as living and holy sacrifices, as our reasonable worship of service to him, we have to consider what we're doing with our day to day. To find out whether or not we're actually doing that. If we spend all of our time, this is Moo, if we spend all of our time or discretionary time watching network television or reading secular books and listening to secular music, it will be a wonder if our minds are not fundamentally secular. That means not holy. Not of God. They are of the world. But our job is to cooperate with God's Spirit by seeking to feed into our minds information that will reprogram our thinking in line with the values of the kingdom. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How can we be transformed if what we're putting in our mind is secular transformation? Unholy transformation. We, we, hear the, we hear Scripture once a week. 
But who do we listen to when we get in our cars? You say, oh, now he's meddling. Now he's meddling. Now he wants to know, he's going to tell us now, throw away our rap CDs. Well, yes, some of them. But how can you put that crap in and think you're going to get good out? This is not a prohibition on secular sources, though. It's simply an exhortation of engagement. Many of you have not prepared yourself well enough to engage the secular world of television, music, and other forms of media. You're just simply not prepared. The TV comes on, the nightly news reporter begins to tell you X, Y, and Z, and you just eat that up and say, yep, it's all true. It's all true what you're telling me right here. Young people, you plug in your favorite, you don't plug in anymore, you guys, you guys have all your music on a, you digitally download your favorite musician and he just feeds it into your ears and you just, you pump it in and you don't ever think about whether or not it's true or not, you just, it's just there and you love it. And then you tell me when I meet with you, I just like the beat, liar. You can quote every song verbatim and you know no Bible verses at all. And you tell me, you're going to tell me that that is transforming you for God's glory? Who are you kidding? I am not impressed. You say, how do you know that? Because I could rap about 20 rap albums. Track 1 to track 16, including the fake prayer at the end of every one of them. Oh, man, I've been talking about women the whole album and how they sluts and hoes, but now glory to God. Oh, no, no, no. God is not impressed with your words. It's written on my heart, and I've had to spend years trying to get that crap out of it. And the only way to do that is by filling it with something holy. Oh, so now i got to listen to Kirk Franklin? No. For a lot of reasons. But if you want to listen to Kirk Franklin, enjoy. But whatever you put in, be ready to do engagement and, and, and critical thinking of it. But so many of us are not prepared. We are not able to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion of the secular world that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. And so we just allow it to be our philosopher. We allow it to be our Jesus and to think for us. And guess what your lives look like? They do look more like Jay-Z and Beyonce instead of Jesus. Yeah, they do. Of course they do. We have to be transformed. God's sacrifice for us demands the transformation of our minds. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. God's sacrifice for us demands not only the sacrifice of our bodies, but is also the transformation of our minds. In this way, God's sacrifice demands the whole of our being, our body and our mind. Paul says two chapters later, that neither, neither do we live or die to ourselves, but if we live, we live to Christ, and if we die, we die to Christ. 
Our minds must be completely changed. A change in their nature and in their essence from one state to another. That is the thrust of the gospel. The gospel is never simply God's calling us out of the world. It's never just God called you out of the world. It's that God has called you out of the world and into the kingdom. You've been called out and you called into. You look like this now. You've replaced evil with good. What happens when the man who is possessed with the demon is emptied of his evil spirit and nothing is replaced with it? Seven demons return and he's more wicked. This is not simply, oh, don't do evil anymore. No. It is receive Christ and the new creation. That's the gospel. This is why Paul doesn't simply leave us with a negative command to be conformed to the world, but he also gives us a positive command to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Both the verbs here, conformed, be conformed, and be transformed, have the same grammatical value to them in Greek. The thrust of the meaning for both is not to presently allow the world to influence you, but rather be continuously influenced by the Spirit of God. And these two things are happening simultaneously. In other words, the way to not be conformed or the way to obey and show your spiritual act of worship to God is not by simply not being conformed to the world. Every religion in the world is good at saying, don't be like the world. Don't be like the world. Give up the pleasures of life. Every religion in the world says that. So if all you're doing is not being conformed to the world, it's not enough. In other words, in one sense I'm saying, yes, your, yes, your justification is faith plus works. It is equal to you have faith, you are saved, so you have faith and you will work. But in another sense, I'm saying if, if all you do is don't do what the world does and haven't accepted Jesus, you're equal to every religion and every moralizer in the world. And that's not salvation. Do not be conformed is only fulfilled by being transformed then, is what I'm saying. The only way to not be conformed to the world in a Christian sense, is by being conformed or transformed to Christ. They happen together. Paul says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things are, they passed away. Don't be conformed. But it doesn't end with there. It doesn't end with a period. The old things have passed away. And what? Behold, new things have come. You say, why are you so on that point? I've seen too many mothers excited about their son conquering the demon of drinking and rejecting Christ. And if all Christ is, is overcoming your addiction, he's no savior at all. 
AA can get you off of alcohol. Christ is saying, I'm going to make you my people. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. The new things have come. We know that God will accomplish his work of salvation that's begun in us because it's promised. But how are we doing this on our end? How are we working to renew our minds today and transform them to Christ? Renewing our minds begins at our baptism. It continues with our study of God's word and our humble service to others It's completed in our glorification. If you haven't given your life to Christ this morning, your mind is still conformed to the patterns and thoughts of this world. And until you repent of your sins and yield to God's mercies, you have no hope of ever shaking your love for sin and being transformed by God's power. But believers, if you have given your life to Christ but still see that your thought patterns are consistent with the world's, you need to embrace the tangible graces which God has given you. What are the tangible graces? They are the reading of His Word. They are prayer. They are the fellowship of the body. And they are the perpetual observance of the Lord's Supper. Remembering that we're in Christ, that we're not the old man. That man has passed away. We're no longer conformed to the pleasures of that life. Now we're being transformed in Christ. Someone asked me, I love this question. Someone asked me last week. They said, I'm really struggling with forgiveness. And they said, I, I need help with that. And I said, I am, I've been there too. I, I've struggled with this myself. I really have. And I just shared with them that the way I overcame that was not by separating myself from God's people. It was the encouragement and admonition of my brothers and sisters in Christ who challenged me to live above my own sinful standards and transcend to the forgiveness of God's people, of a Christian. Being in the community was what helped me overcome My resistance to forgiveness. Brothers and sisters telling me, Andrew, no, that's not good. No, no, repent of that. No, that's bad. Yes, you're justified. Yes, you should hold that person in condemnation. But Andrew, no, don't don't be okay with that. Elevate, remember, forgive those. You've done nothing. And then I went to the Word, and the Word told me, you've done nothing if all you do is love those who love you. If you really want to be like a Christian, you love those who, who don't love you. Oh man, so you say, you didn't come to this all on your own? You didn't come to it by listening to talk radio? Or watching, binge watching Netflix? Nah, I didn't. No. I came to it through the graces that God gives his people to disciple them to greater conformity in Christ. The people of God, his word, his prayer, 
and the perpetual reminder that while I eat of this bread, so does the brother I'm at odds with. Neither of us are special. Both of us consume of the same bread. We eat the same body and drink the same cup. That's what reminds me to be transformed to Christ. So then the urge this morning is for you to do something. It's for you. Yes, God's will. Yes, God is in control of everything. But what does that have to do with you being responsible? Scripture makes it very clear. Every one of us is responsible for what we do with Jesus Christ. Every one of us. All of you are going to go to McDonald's when you leave here and you're going to drive through and order your food. You don't say, well, if God wills it, I'll get a Big Mac. No, you get in your car. I'm going to go get roti, by the way. For those of you who don't know what roti is. There you go. Oh, see, there we go. There's our trinnies. Is that what it was like back at home? They just, the, the tr- congregation just talked back with the pastor. <laughs> we love you, Betty. We love you. But see me after the service. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) No, you go and do something. Well, if God wills me to stop living with this person who's not my spouse. No, he wills it right now. He wills it right now. He wills for you to obey now. Not tomorrow, but now. He wills for you to forgive that person now. Now, there are churches in this neighborhood and in this city that'll tell you something different. They're going to talk to you about something different. But if you're going to come to this church, we're going to talk about how we all, since your pastor has to go through it, how we all can be more like Christ. You say, when was this whole forgiveness thing going on? Oh, up until about a month ago. Say, but you've been our pastor. Yeah, that's right. I'm not special and neither are you. I need the graces you need. I need to be reminded that God's standard is holier than me. Who are we impressing? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So what? God's righteousness and his will is proven through our living sacrifice of our bodies and the renewal of our minds. Romans 12, 2, so that you may prove what the will of God is and that which is good and acceptable and perfect. God's righteous will is proven, that is vindicated, through the living sacrifice of our bodies and the renewal of our minds. The most impressive thing to me about God's power in working in the hearts of his people is not speaking in tongues. It's when two enemies forgive one another. That's impressive. Because humans don't do that. They'll hold that grudge until we throw the dirt on your casket. But when you forgive people who hate you 
and you love people who hate you, oh man, that's God. That's his power at work in you. That's special. That is impressive. We prove God's will to be holy when we are holy. Jesus commands us to, let the, to be the light of God which now burns in us and to let that light shine among men so that when they see our good deeds, they might do what? Give glory to God. When we live holy lives devoted to God, we prove to the world the surpassing greatness of His excellency. Peter told believers that when they are slandered for their good deeds by those who revile their good behavior in Christ, they will be put to shame. By our lives we testify that God is good when we live good. That God is a worthy God when we live worthy lives. That God is perfect and holy when we live holy lives. We prove to the world and to ourselves the mercies of God at work in our lives. If you're a Christian, be careful how you use that term. If you're a Christian, live like it. Here's my challenge. Many of us say we love God and are thankful for the mercies of His salvation. But do our lives testify to our love for Him? Do others see God's will proved in us by the holiness of our lives and the renewal of our minds? David Chase used to ask the youth this, and it, it haunts me. It's a, it's a thought that I, I just love. It's a great illustration. He used to say, if you were on trial and you were brought to trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Many of us know. No. Ask yourself that. Do my neighbors know I'm saved? Do I prove God's holiness by how I live? Do my children, do my children know I'm saved? Does my spouse know I'm saved by being a wife who submits to her husband as unto the Lord and a husband who loves his wife as Christ loved the church and died for her? Does my spouse know I love Jesus? Does my boss know I'm a Christian because I, I don't show up late to work? I, I don't steal what's not mine? Do my friends, my homies, do my, do my boys, do they know? And I ask myself that. Do my friends know because when we're together, I act like Jesus. I'm transformed. Or do we treat God's salvation with contempt with our behavior? Have we failed to appreciate the sacrifice he made to give us such a great gift? The question I leave you with this morning is this. If God has died for you, how can you not live for him? Let's pray. God, we will not earn salvation. You have given us salvation, but we will prove your salvation. We are justified.
You have forgiven us of our sins. And those who have experienced it, Lord, we demonstrate with our works. Lord, you know this vessel that speaks this morning. You know how empty I am and how empty my thoughts can be short of your work. And you have to conform me and transform me, Lord God, but you have to do it for everyone in here. Lord, I pray that we would see a church that demonstrates that they understand and love and have received your mercies by the works of their hands. We love you, Lord. Amen.